everybody, welcome back to another episode of My Second Self and I. I am Matt. What I call our co-host is Alex. He's one of the voices in my head and helps keep the story moving along. Sometimes he's just chaos. Thanks, as always, to those of you who listened to the last episodes I put out, Janine Jones and Dorothea Puente. If you haven't listened yet, go back and do that after this one. Let me know what you guys think, what I'm doing over here. This episode's taking us right back across the pond to England. This time, instead of a ghost getting shot in the face, we have a spoiled, manipulative brat who decided that, hey, killing a bunch of people like Bonnie and Clyde might be fun. Which I suppose is as good a time as any to bring up my little disclaimer thing. This is a comedy show, okay? I'm going to make jokes, say things in funny ways, do some different voices. The energy's going to fluctuate a little bit. I'm kind of loud. But I'm going to back away from the mic a little bit today. Try not to blow out anyone's eardrums. The reason I tell these stories the way I tell them is because when I listen to other crime shows that follow the standard dark or eerie, emotional, tragic tone that many of them follow, I don't feel good about listening to that. There's good information, and they're very well produced and informative, generally speaking, but I always feel like I leave feeling gritty or gross or feeling some type of way about something I didn't feel before I turned that show on. I'd rather tell the exact same story in a funny way so that everyone out there can get a positive experience of something otherwise horrible. Despite being in the most peaceful era in all of human existence, court of public opinion would lead you to believe shit sucks out there. Yeah, kinda. Every one of us could walk outside right now and stand on the porch and point at five things. That sucks. That sucks. That sucks. Oh, that thing, that thing really sucks. But it doesn't have to suck. Learning is good. Learning is fun. And if you're going to learn about something horrible, you might as well have a good time doing it. Otherwise, what's the point, right? I have to read about a nurse that killed tons of children, and I'm going to feel bad after reading it? No thanks. I'm going to make some jokes about whatever I can along the way, because that's more fun for me. So I hope that sounds like something that would be fun for you, too. As for today, pretty much the usual setup is to be expected. I'll start as close to the beginning as I can, walk through what happened, examine the decisions people make and things they say, because those are always interesting, and I can usually find a funny angle on something when I do that. Sorry for the slight delay in releasing this episode. The co-host I mentioned earlier decided that uh, we're going to have to clean literally everything I own before doing anything productive. And then that night, he also decided, "Uh, guess what? We're not sleeping either, fucker. So, yeah, you can thank Alex for that. That semi-weird thing you said out loud to a stranger one time seven years ago seemed really important at 3 a.m. I just wanted to sort through it. So who are we talking about today? Joanna Dennehy is one of the UK's most infamous female spree killers. This episode, I think, is going to be kind of a lead-up to two future episodes. A little teaser for things to come. Why is her story so important? She is one of only three women in the UK to receive a full-life sentence for her crimes, along with Rosemary West and Myra Hindley, one of whom is dead, both of whom I'll probably talk about during my Not in America-themed bunch of episodes, but I don't remember what month I planned that for. I think one of the most interesting parts of this story, for me at least, is the lead-up to the crimes. Normally on this show and many others, it's Honestly, kind of the nature of the genre, really. The subjects often start out under not-so-great circumstances. Parents are often violent, abusive alcoholics or are themselves involved in some less-than-above-board shit. Like, if you need a reference for what I mean, 
go back and listen to literally any other episode I put out, and you'll probably see what I'm talking about. Speaking of cases I've already done, this one reminds me, in a way, of the Lazy Nazi Coward Murderer in Oregon episode I put out last October of last year. Wow. I can't believe it's already been a year of doing this still. If you remember that, it was about Holly Ann Grigsby and Joey Peterson, a pair of white supremacist slash Nazi sympathizers whom attempted to eliminate, quote, all the Jews on the West Coast. They managed to kill four people, none of whom were Jews, and are now, if I remember right, in prison for the rest of their lives. But I think that's probably more than enough set up for today. Alex! What? Get your passport. Get your suitcase. UK listeners, however many of you there are, we're coming back over. I know we were just there, but I had such a good time in Hammersmith, I just couldn't say no to a return trip for a little holiday abroad. And as always, when it comes to my British accent, um, I know it's a little bit off, but I'm trying. Alex, hit the button. We need some music. We are now about a nine-hour flight away from where I record these. The suitcase is open on the bed. I think Alex is still asleep. I've ordered some room service, and I have a story to tell you. Gather around the fire pit. There's not a fire pit in here. It's a hotel room. Joanna Dennehy. Or maybe it's just Joanne. I've seen it both ways in various articles. She was born in 1982 in St. Albans, Hertfordshire. And what a place this is. People of culture probably already know this, but I didn't. It is the burial site of Britain's first saint, St. Alban, and is also where hot cross buns were invented, if I'm reading that right. Also an important Roman settlement, but that was thousands of years ago. Let's get back into modern times. Joanna had, by all accounts, a decent and proper upbringing. She grew up in a very well-to-do affluent area called Harpenden, a little commuter town. Her parents were hard workers. Father was a security guard while mom managed to shop in town, doing everything they could to provide a stable upbringing and loving home. Two advantages we don't normally see when talking about a criminal's early life. As a child, she was just like any other kid. Happy, laughing, smiling, outgoing, lots of friends, always hanging out on the playground. But also, like lots of other kids, she had an emotional side to her as well, and that really started to take hold in her early teens. Hormones are just raging all over the place. No idea what anything is or what this feeling is or why it's there in the first place. What is happening with my body? Puberty can be pretty wild. And a wild thing to do during puberty is what Joanna did, which was... Shitload of dangerous drugs and drinking. Hey, this stuff makes me feel not shitty for a little while. Let's do that instead. That's, yeah. <laughs> Small towns do that too. And her life sort of spiraled outward from there. She began drinking and using drugs during her early teenage years, experimented sexually with lots of different people. She'd cut herself from time to time. And then when she's 16, she's had enough of her damn loving parents trying to help her, and she runs away to get married to her 21-year-old boyfriend, John Trainer. And then in 1999, when she's 17, she becomes pregnant and is furious about it. She didn't want kids, and now everything is ruined, in her mind at least, so the moment she gets out of the hospital, she doubles down on the party life and dedicates every minute she can to doing whatever drug and drink she can get her hands on. Breakfast beers for an appetizer, cutting herself as the main course, and then washing it down with a big slug of vodka for dessert. Her husband John must have had the patience of St. Alban himself because he stuck around with her until about 2005. They also had a second child around 2002 or 3, I think, but Joanna's behavior had only gotten worse and worse. She'd go out drinking all night and come back covered in hickeys and bruises and cuts and being all sorts of out of whack. 
And also that one time where she went out drinking, probably to the detriment of the family, and then while out drinking, called a goon to go around to the house and put the boots to John hard style. Oh, listen, mate, I don't rightly know why Joe sent me around to rough you up, but that's what she paid me to come here to do, so that's what I'm here to do, yeah? Or something to that effect. Eventually, John says, I've had about enough of this bullshit, I'm taking the kids, and we're getting the hell out of here, see you later. That was decided after Joanna stabbed the giant knife into the carpet during an argument one night. Yeah, smart on you, John. Good choice there. If he only knew. I mean, he does know, but he didn't know then. That was in 2005 when John and the kids left. Unable to sustain herself in such a wealthy area, Joanne moves to Peterborough. I don't know how much more affordable that place is than the other place, but that's where she is when she meets her first accomplice, Gary Richards, or as he's called in the streets, Stretch. Why is he called Stretch? Probably because he's seven feet tall and a literal human mountain. And he's instantly smitten with Joanna when they meet, despite the size difference. Now, I imagine anything happening between them would require a significant amount of stretching beforehand, so that could also be another way to earn him his nickname. You know, it wouldn't be a stretch to think that they might have to stretch before... Never mind. During the next six years, Joanna would finance her addictions through sex work, and that would likely play a role in forming her strong hatred of men. Then she's arrested in 2012 after a failed thievery attempt and taken to a psychiatric hospital for observation and treatment. While she's there, she is diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder and showed clear signs of some antisocial personality disorders as well. I think in the little advice corner thing that I'm doing now, I'm going to have some more info on antisocial stuff, so look out for that later. After she is released, for the next year or so, she's staying at a bedsit in Peterborough at 11 Rolleston Goth, which I think is kind of like a halfway house kind of thing. The property is managed by Mr. Kevin Lee, who was also semi-romantically involved with Joanna at some point. She also stays at another property just like this one over on 38 Byfield Lane, so I guess she sleeps at both places depending on her schedule. By now, she's pretty much made peace with who she's become as a person and isn't shy about it. She likes to get down and dirty, do some drugs, drink and fuck, and get tied up and whipped and handcuffed and all that good shit, hell yeah, and even wore handcuffs on her pants pretty much all the time, make it hurt so good! She's into some cool stuff, but eventually, you know, start to get bored. Start to get tired of the same old, same old thing happening every day. Just the same old drugs and dicks coming and going in and out every day, making a mess on things, of things, putting things out of schedule. It's starting to really eat out, eat up all of Joanne's internal storage space, and she's running out of room for new stuff, but before that happens, she says, You know what? I think I want to escalate. I need some more excitement. I think I know just how I want to do it. You see, I met a man the other day. I think he might just be the perfect thing to test out my new plan. Okay, dipping out of my pseudo first-person framing device for a second, this is a really bad plan that she has. Just like in the Grigsby-Peterson case, I think I said it in there too, this is a really bad plan. Now don't get me wrong, I love a bad plan, but it has to be bad with a purpose. A plan has to have planning involved to some degree, but this one and the plan that those lazy Nazis had was really just some words. Peterson and Grigsby wanted to, quote, kill the Jews, which is lazy and not well thought out, on top of it not working out well for them. 
And this is basically just as asinine. Joanna wanted her and her accomplices to, quote, be like Bonnie and Clyde and kill at least nine people because it might be fun, which is also not well thought out and didn't work out well for them. It might be fun? Really? Yeah, this lady has some problems, I'd say. And again, kind of reminds me of Grigsby and Peterson. There's not really any reason for any of this to happen. They just had a bad idea and then justified it to themselves, and that was good enough to go on. But before we go on, we're going to take a couple minutes to hear from a friend of mine. He's had so much success in Sacramento that he's decided to open up a shop in Peterborough to test out the waters for an international market. I mean, his name kind of makes it too easy, right? Alright, how you doing out there? It's me, Ron English. Now, I don't have any billboards around this town yet, but I can almost guarantee you there's quite a few people here that have a need for this type of business I run. That's right, I'm opening up another Tickle Box, the world's only gently used adult novelty resale shop and bait supply, now with two locations worldwide in Sacramento and Peterborough. Where else can you expect to buy edible panties that can also be used to catch dinner? They've only been worn one time by the previous owner, but all you really gotta do is tear off a little bitty tiny piece of the back part, put it on the hook, and then you can catch pretty much anything. But that's not all we have. Around the corner in the room with the black lights is where you find the good stuff. Vibrating spinner bait, miniature handcuffs to use two minnows as bait at the same time that are also self-suctioning, meaning that you never lose the bait or the fish on the line. Lures that pulsate to the rhythm of whatever song you're listening to, causing the fish to come closer and closer, meaning that you finish fishing faster. And while you're here, why not pick up something comfortable? You can get a see-through lace nighty that comes pre-scented with fish pheromones so you can look sexy while you cast a line. I'm telling you folks, only two other people have ever tried this thing on. It's a hot steal right now. So what you waiting for? Do I gotta throw out one of them vibrating pulse lures to get you to come down to the tickle box? Get on down here already. Get the tickle box. Gently used adult novelty resale shop and bait supply. If you're confused right now, good. Ron is a confusing man, and that's exactly what he wants. I think you can hear more about Ron in the Dorothea Puente episode, but, you know, I think his business model could use some work. He needs to crowdsource some ideas if he's going to set up shop in England. I think the only person that might go there is Joanna, but she's about to do some stuff that's going to make it really hard for her to be a regular patron of the Tickle Box. Let's, uh, let's switch it up to the other track for this part. There we go. Much better. There we go. Okay. In March of 2013, Joanna is out and about doing whatever the hell she's doing that day when she meets a man. Luckily for us, I happen to be fluent in Polish, so reading his name is going to be no problem. Lukasz Labasiewski told you I was perfectly fluent was on top of the world. He met a moderately attractive girl who seemed to be really into him. He didn't even seem to mind the star tattoo on her cheek under her right eye. Things couldn't be better for Lucas. He even texts his friends that he's excited about his new girlfriend and that life is good. Beautiful, even. And a couple days later, Joanna invites him over to the house on Rolleston Goth. And when he arrives there, he is somehow stabbed through the heart and killed by Joanna. Her entire reason for meeting this poor man was to lure him to the house and murder him. What the fuck, Joanna? Jesus, it makes that text message part really sad, too. Like, his friends were probably cheering him on, like, yeah, okay, good for Lucas. Like, it's almost as sad as if you really believed I was fluent in Polish a minute ago. And here's another reason why this is a bad plan. She lured Lucas to the house to kill him, 
did that, dumped his body outside in a wheelie bin, which is the British term for a trash can that I'm probably going to steal because I like it and I'm an American and that's what we do. And then she realizes, oh shit, what am I going to do with the body? I guess I can show it to this 14-year-old girl that lives nearby, which she did, and it didn't help her in the end, as you might have guessed. And so the next two days after she killed Lucas was spent borrowing money from her landlord, Kevin, and getting a taxi with Stretch to go buy a car, which she could then use with the help of Stretch to dispose of the body in the Thorny Dyke area of Peterborough. Holy shit, dude. How the fuck is the car an afterthought? Is stuff just happening one step at a time in her mind? Like, can she not plan past the first step for things? If you don't have a car and you need a car to do stuff, the first thing you figure out is how to get a car. You know you're gonna kill this person. You know you can't keep the body there, but let's just kill him now and worry about the car later. Dude, no, what? Car first. Getting a car, at least over here, is an enormous pain in the ass. Like. How did she not figure it? And it still took two days to do it after she killed the guy. Like, it's just incredible to me that she couldn't figure out how to get the car first. So she does that. They bought a Vauxhall Astra, by the way. It kind of looks like the UK version of a Golf GTI. Like, pretty much exactly like that. But I don't think it made Joanna and Stretch as invisible as she thought it would because lots of people saw them driving around this area while they were looking for a place to dump the body. And then a week later, the urge resurfaces. This man, John Chapman, was a resident of the other house Joanna called home over on 38 Byfield, not the Rolleston Goth house. I just really like saying those words. He was a war veteran who had fallen on hard times, alcoholism, and hit this man really hard. I feel you there, buddy. Not a fun way to get through it. He's just minding his own business, trying to figure it out, and Joanna comes over and fucking ruins it. Joanna had been to the house before and had met John on a handful of times. She was sorta kinda working with her landlord, Kevin Lee, the property manager of the other house, and had served eviction notices to some of the tenants there, including John Chapman, even going so far as to threatening to remove John from the house by any means necessary. What a terrifying thing to hear if you're a tenant, especially a guy in his situation. He's probably a good guy, by and large, just maybe a little too heavy-handed on the booze and it gets the better of him, so... I can't imagine that's a fun thing for him to have heard. On this day, however, March 29th, he's at home trying to figure out what to do, but it's a holiday, Good Friday, and any holidays is good a reason to get plastered, so societal expectations be damned, and he gets shithoused. Just a full productive day of waking up and drinking, passing out, lather, rinse, repeat. And I'm only telling you that because it kind of makes this next part a little better, maybe. Maybe if he's four times the legal driving limit drunk, he wouldn't feel this. Joanna comes over, and it's early in the morning. He's still passed out on the bed from the night before, sleeping it off until he's sobered enough, sobered up enough for round two. Joanna comes in, stabs him in the neck, severing the carotid artery, and then another five times in the chest, two of which went through bone. Oh my god, I hope he didn't feel that. Maybe he was so drunk that he never even woke up to feel anything or even know what was happening. I mean, alcohol does crazy things to you, so maybe, but... God damn, man, that's an awful way to go. But Joanna isn't alone. Leslie Layton, scumbag friend of Stretch, is also there. 
and he had used John's phone to call Stretch and let them know that they needed to be picked up. It's like 6.30 in the fucking morning right now. And for some reason, Leslie, scumbag friend of Stretch, also had a photo of John's body on his phone, but it was deleted and then later recovered. Not sure if he took it himself or if Joanna took it with his phone for some different reason. Just thought that was an interesting tidbit to include. At one point, somebody took a picture of John's corpse and just had it there like it was a tro like a weird trophy that they have sometimes like that's i don't know and then they deleted it but then where cops are smarter than they are so they found it because the stuff's never really all the way gone and that's okay and you'd think after the first time she'd get rid of the body immediately right yes i'm certain she's learned her wrong she doesn't learn lessons she gets picked up by stretch goes shopping with her friends and basically just spends the whole rest of the day fucking around doing goofy shit until nightfall. Then she gets Stretch and Leslie to go grab John's body and take it back over to Thorny Dyke in the same place that she buried Lucas a few days prior. By this point, she said herself that after killing Lucas, the killings became Moorish, which is the British way of saying that she began to like it and wanted to do it some more. And the next victim on her list is possibly the worst one, at least in my opinion. I've mentioned Kevin Lee a few times by now. He owned the Ralston Goth property, as well as the Byfield property, as well as many other bedsits around the area. When he met Joanna, <laughs> when he met Joanna, she had taken it upon herself to create a new backstory, one where she had endured hardships and abuse from relatives and loved ones, that she had murdered her father and served prison time for it. Kevin hears all this and sees an opportunity to help, a poor soul that just needs a friend. He was willing to be that person that would go out of their way to help a stranger just out of the goodness of his heart. For all he knew, she was telling the truth, and he was still willing to look past it and lend a hand where he could. Except she wasn't abused, didn't kill her dad, and the only time she was in, quote, prison at all was for a psych eval for getting busted during a petty theft. I don't think she did much actual prison time before that. She's crafted the perfect story to get in close to Kevin and then strike whenever he's used up all his usefulness to her. And now, just as with the other two, she lures him to the house, the Ralston Garth one again, after promising some sort of sexy rape fantasy between them, and instead, she stabs him five times in the chest through both lungs and his heart. The rape fantasy thing is true, by the way, straight from a court document. It specifically says, quote, you had whetted his appetite sexually by telling him that he came to see you Friday afternoon and that you were going to dress him up and ripe him. And, Kevin also told his friend what was happening that day about an hour before it all went down. I love that he was able to tell a friend, though. Like, that's gotta be a close relationship to be able to tell anybody that you're excited about that. And I guess he could have just said something else, though, too. Like, I'm going to wet me whistle at yonder brothel, don't wait up! It's possible, okay? <laughs> So after killing Kevin, Joanna, Leslie, and Stretch drove out to the same wooded area as the first two bodies and dumped Kevin there too. They dressed him in a black sequin dress and left him in a ditch with his butt exposed. Just fucking why, man? Like, who's that really for? Staging like that is always so weird to me. Except this time, they took Kevin's car, a Mondeo. It's a Ford Fusion. It's exactly a British Ford Fusion. They took Kevin's car, the Mondeo, because after they dumped the body, the CCTV system over there sees the car getting petrol at the petrol station and then driving away, where they went to go burn the car on the other side of Peterborough with the newly purchased petrol. She's fucking dangerous, dude. Oh shit, yeah, she is scary. 
And even scarier, they are now 140 miles away back in Hereford, Hereford, I'm trying, and Joanna isn't done having her little bit of fun yet. While driving around with Leighton and Stretch, they come across a couple of men walking their dogs. Robin Beresa was just walking his dog, minding his own business, when Joanna pulls up next to him in the car, jumps out, stabs him in the shoulder, and a couple of times in the side, then jumps back in the car while whichever one of the other two is driving hauls ass away. A couple of minutes later, they come across another man walking his dog, John Rogers, and he is stabbed over 30 times, and she stole his dog, Archie! She stole his dog? What? Luckily... The dog survived, and also both of the owners would survive, and Archie is, of course, reunited with his owner, John. John was in really bad shape after she stabbed him. He, think I think, collapsed one or both of his lungs, and if not for people being nearby and watching this happen and coming to his aid very quickly, like, they wouldn't have gotten him stabilized. Like, he got... So, both of these men got so lucky. Like, that's... Such a random, crazy, violent attack. God damn, that's scary. And her whole reason for stabbing these two men, in addition to killing the other three, was for fun. She literally just liked how it felt and wanted to do it more. Doesn't care that it's wrong, knows that it's wrong, and doesn't anyway. Does it anyway. It's the definition of a sociopath right here. Later, when she is arrested, she says she didn't want to kill any women, especially women with babies, but that men could be good entertainment. Look. Joanna, I'm telling you, if you want entertainment, you don't have to kill people. You don't have to stab a man and steal his dog. You could just go over to the River District and check out the Blacklight Room at the Tickle Box. Ron English has all kinds of fun stuff in there. I really think she would have shopped there if a place like that existed. So two days after Kevin was murdered, his family reported him missing, and his body and the other two were quickly found by the people who regularly walked in that area. They dumped the bodies in a high-foot traffic area where many witnesses saw them driving around looking shady AF. Super smart, guys. So she is very quickly arrested later that same day, April 2nd, and after dodging the cops for the last three days. While awaiting trial, the police find a poorly written plan to attempt a prison break by means of a guard's severed finger to trick the security system. So she's placed in solitary until actual trial time. She hasn't even been sentenced to anything yet, and she's already doing crazy shit. And then at trial, Joanna pleads guilty to everything, and the judge, Judge Justice Spencer, the most perfect judge name ever, gives her a full life term, only the third woman in the UK to ever receive that sentence. To put that in comparison, they have three, like total ever women, convicted of life sentences, while in the U.S., we had, as of 2021, about 2,200 women serving a life sentence, 52 of which are on death row. I guess, uh, take that for whatever you're going to take it for, but it's true. Stretch got a life sentence with a minimum of 19 years, and Leighton got 14 years. Then when she's in prison... She tries to get married to another lady named Haley Palmer, but something goes horribly wrong and they both attempt suicide in a failed pact between them. They're totally fine now, I think. And in 2019, this is fun, kind of, Joanna is transferred to Low Newton, the same prison where Rosemary West is being held, the only other woman who was sentenced to a life sentence but is still alive. Myra Henley died in, I think, 2002, I don't remember. Haven't read on her story in a while, but Rosemary West's still alive and was at the same prison where they put Joanna 
and then Joanna immediately threatened to kill her, and Rosemary was transferred to another prison the very next day. And then Joanna has also been known to send many letters to different men, trying to get them to the prison for who fucking knows what, probably not good. Some nefarious purposes, I'm sure. And that is the crazy 10-day story of Joanna Dennehy. That all happened over the course of 10 days, like, just like Grigsby and Peterson, that was a 10-day spree too. All of whom exhibited clear signs of antisocial personality disorders, so... Let's just shimmy on over to the advice corner for just a moment. I honestly don't know what to call this segment, so until I think of something better, I'll just stick with advice corner. This week, I want to briefly talk about the difference between a couple of things. Let me remind you, in case you're new or tuned in late, I am not a psychologist or psychiatrist or a doctor of any kind. I have a high school education, and frankly, my only qualification for hosting a podcast is um, I bought a microphone one day. <laughs> so just keep that in mind during this next part. I might get something wrong, or not all the way right, but I'm trying, alright? So, you've probably heard it said, or may have said it yourself, I don't want to do that. I'm antisocial. Or, I don't really like people. I must be antisocial. No. You're asocial. That's an asocial behavior. Asocial means not being motivated by social interaction. Asocial behavior means not being interested in forming social groups or connections with others. Antisocial behavior means contrary to the laws and customs of society in a way that causes annoyance and disapproval of others, or marked by behavior deviating sharply from the social norm. Somebody who's antisocial might do the following. Exploit, manipulate, violate the rights of others, lack concern, regret, or remorse about other people's distress, behave irresponsibly, have difficulty sustaining long-term relationships, blame other people for their problems, break the law. Somebody who's asocial just really isn't interested in interacting with other people. They're just fine by themselves. Asociality can be useful clinically also as it sometimes manifests itself as symptoms of schizophrenia, avoidant personalities, and autism spectrum disorders. Non-social, unsocial, or socially uninterested would also be acceptable terms, but it's not antisocial. Joanna Dennehy was antisocial. Grigsby and Peterson were antisocial. You're probably just burned out, or tired, or lazy! Just kidding, you're not lazy. Go get some rest, dog. Anyway. That's just something I was thinking about this week and wanted to share with you. Maybe you can use that information somewhere. Maybe you just hold on to it. Either way, you have it now. And there you also have the end of this episode. I can't get over what kind of awful bit. She stole his dog! What the hell, man? If you like that story or if you just like the sound of my voice when I tell stories, maybe you can help me out a little, huh? Leave me a rating or review somewhere on Spotify or iTunes or YouTube or wherever you listen to this. Or if you can leave me some feedback somewhere, I would really love to hear from you. I think this is our last week of Hot Girl Summer, so be prepared for that when I get back to our regularly scheduled Sunday episode release. I know this came out a little bit late, but hey, nobody's perfect, and I like to try to get as close to that as we can, so I'm trying. And until then... Have a good week, everybody. Tell your friends about my show and stay kind. 